Thanks for tuning in to the IGM podcast. We're so glad you've decided to explore God's word with us. We look forward to connecting with you in email at infointegritygm.com or online at our website, www.integritygm.com. We hope this podcast encourages you to grow in the knowledge of God through His Word. Be blessed. Blessings to everyone today in the name of Yeshua the Messiah, in the name of Jesus the Christ. Today we're going to be looking at the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. I encourage you to go back and listen to the recording on the background material of this letter. It's almost an hour long, but it gives you such, I believe, good content of the background, the historical context, uh, the setting that needs to be understood as we look at this letter. We're going to start reading in chapter 1, and we're going to read the first 17 verses starting off. Today, Laura is here in the studio with us, and Alan as well. The three of us have been doing a lot of recording together, and we are a team here. And so we're going to be bringing forth this first chapter, and I'm going to ask Laura if you could read the first 17 verses for us. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake among whom you are also called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may have obtained some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Thank you, Laura. And I'm so glad that she was reading. She puts Alan and I to shame in our reading abilities. And so we're going to go back through these verses. I wanted to read the first 17, and then we're going to go verses 18 through 32 later. And then we'll 
We're going to read those verses and then go through them verse by verse. Starting in verse 1, Paul says, I am a bondservant. And you know from past teachings, a bondservant is different than a servant. A bondservant is one that has voluntarily given his allegiance to his master from the heart and remains a servant to that master for life. So by Paul saying, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, he is saying, from the heart, from my innermost being, my allegiance is to Christ Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, and I belong to him, and my life and everything that I possess, everything that is in my hands is for his glory and is coming from the heart. My life belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what it means to be a bondservant. A bondservant is committed to his master from the heart for life. He said, called as an apostle. Many times we look at the understanding of ministry because this is talking about his specific ministry. Later on, Paul's going to speak in Ephesians as he's under house arrest in Rome about some have been given by God as gifts to the body as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastor-teachers. Here is Paul's specific ministry that God has given to him. Paul is not one of the twelve. In fact, some people teach that he's the thirteenth apostle and there's none outside of Paul. But when we look at apostolic ministry, you have the twelve, but beyond the twelve, you have Paul. You have Barnabas mentioned as an apostle. You have Jacob, James mentioned as an apostle. Many beyond the twelve is mentioned as apostles, and there is apostolic ministry that is beyond the twelve. We see that in the book of Acts, and we see that in the New Covenant. Some people within their systematic theology say that there was only the twelve, and there's not any more apostles today. I would say there are not any apostles today that qualify as the twelve, but apostolic ministry through others we see within the New Covenant scriptures, and it is still in that same context today. Paul was called as an apostle. It is not something that he chose to do. It is something that God called him to do. Many years ago, we were in a context that people were saying, do not wait for the calling of God. Go out, and whatever the greater need is, you need to be there to fulfill that need and quit waiting for God to call you to do something. There's a great danger in that. We are all called in general to be a witness of Jesus Christ. We are all called to be ambassadors of Christ, but we're not all called to be an apostle. And we're not all called to be an evangelist or a prophet or a pastor teacher. Think about Acts chapter 13. If you would go and look at the first three verses, you see that there were prophets and teachers within that congregation. And as they were fasting and they were praying as a congregation, God spoke to them to set apart Barnabas and Shaul for the work to which I have called them. 
And they went on the first missionary journey from Antioch because God called them to do that. And they did set them apart for that purpose to which God had called them to do. So what I am saying is Paul was called to be an apostle and even more of a greater understanding, an apostle to the Gentiles. And so he understands that, that he was set apart for this purpose. Then he says, set apart for the gospel of God. He is set apart to preach God's word, the good news, as an apostle, someone that is sent out, set apart to lay the foundation of the gospel. Verse 2, which he promised, who promised? God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What verse 2 is saying, that God promised this gospel, the good news, whether you're looking at Isaiah Jeremiah, going back to the Psalms, looking in Malachi, Micah, Daniel. Beforehand, God spoke of this gospel that was brought forth in the Holy Scriptures. What is the Holy Scriptures that Paul is referring to? That is the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Covenant Scriptures. Concerning his son, you say, where did God speak about his son? Think about Psalm chapter 2 and go read Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is about God establishing his Messiah, his son, and the nations better respect God's son. He has declared him his son to the world, and you better kiss the son lest he be angry with you. So read Psalm 2. Also look at Isaiah chapter 9. A son shall be given unto us, a child will be born unto us. And it goes into describing this child and this son. And this son is one that shall be called Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor. So you go to that understanding, and the throne of David will be established through this son. So look at verse 3, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the declaration of him in power as the Son of God is at the resurrection. We know in Psalm chapter 2, and fulfilled at his baptism, that God said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, which is a fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2. However, what Paul is saying, he has declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection. The resurrection is proof that what he did on the cross as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice of dying for our sins, That's Isaiah 53, that the grave did not have the power to hold him. Death could not hold him down. So when you look at this, it's the resurrection that declares him the Son of God with powers because when he came out of the grave, he came out of the grave with the keys of death, Hades, and the grave, and his declaration as the Son of God with power is at his resurrection. Later on, Paul is going to say at the end of chapter 4, he died for our transgressions, he was raised for our justification. It is the resurrection that declares who he is in power. Scott, looking at that, especially verse 2, where he talks about the Holy Scriptures, and I know you've 
talked a lot about it on other podcasts, but, you know, really the bridge between the old covenant and the new covenant and how it just really flows into one amazing story of redemption. Like you said, the, the Holy Scriptures he's talking about is the old covenant. Paul didn't have, you know, the Gospels to look back to. He didn't have any other, you know, writings except the the old covenant scriptures. Um, and, and even myself, I'm, I've been challenged the last year, you know, to really dive more into the Old Covenant um, to look at it and to see, you know, so much how it proclaims Jesus and so much how all those principles that are in there are the same that are in the New Covenant. I've been guilty of being a little bit lazy where you sort of don't want to power through intellectually those Old Covenant kind of passages. They're hard. You know, they can be difficult. There's some difficult things to, to work out and to think through. But, you know, this is what Paul, he kind of leads with here, you know, to the Romans, and I think that's kind of significant where he is saying, yes, it's in the, the Old Covenant, the Holy Scriptures, and what he lays out, and we'll see this later in the whole book of Romans, you know, is based off of principles and things that are in the Old Covenant Scriptures, and that's right. the redemptive story of, of Jesus and the Messiah, and it's, in, it's incredible seeing how those prophecies thousands of years ago say exactly, they're, they're very specific, intentional, and they line up, and it's just when you can see it and see how... How could someone know that thousand years ago without God revealing it to them? Right. Everything that's in the new comes out of the old, is fulfilled. The old is fulfilled in the new through the Messiah. At this time, chronologically, you have Jacob, James, Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians, and First and Second Corinthians that have already have preceded Romans chronologically. There is not a new covenant canon at this time. Everything that they are preaching is coming from the Hebrew Scriptures. In Berea, in the book of Acts, I believe it's uh, Acts chapter 17, the Bereans checked the Scriptures. They were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica to see what Paul was saying. Was it true? Was it from the Word of God? And they saw that it was true. And so when the scriptures, when we talk about the scriptures here, contextually, we're talking about the Old Covenant, the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh. And here, Paul, maybe Mark, Mark's gospel has been written at this time, because Mark's gospel is being written about the same time of Romans. I date Mark's gospel between 55 and 60 AD. There is not really a written history of the gospel, of the life of Jesus, that's really even in circulation at this time. So where is he preaching about the Messiah? He's going back to the Hebrew scriptures that speak about the Messiah, that speak about the Messiah coming and who will be the Messiah. And Jesus fulfills every aspect of the scriptures concerning the Messiah. If we go to verse 5 as we're coming through this, Remember in verse 4, he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection. It is the resurrection that shows that everything about his life and his redemption, that it is true, and he has all authority and power. Coming to verse 5, we see that he says, through whom we, talking about Paul and the other ones that are with him, Paul always ministered with a team. He understood that they ministered together, that they were co-workers, and that they were standing together as a team through whom we have received grace and apostleship, not just 
he himself, but as the team is ministering together, they're ministering in an apostolic context to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Now you begin to understand, going back to his conversion in Acts chapter 9, about this specific calling to the Gentiles. There, when it talks about his calling and what, how God would use him, it mentions the Gentiles first, right after his conversion or his experience. We also see in his defense in Jerusalem that he's sharing his testimony, and he shares how God is sending him to the Gentiles. And that's what caused such a reaction in Jerusalem that he mentioned that. Here we see that this apostleship, in his understanding, is focused upon the non-Jewish community among the Gentiles. And later on, we're going to see he still holds the conviction first to the Jew and also to the Greek. So here he says, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. He understands specifically God has called him to be an apostle. The others that are with him, they're ministering together by his grace and this apostleship to the Gentiles. There is a passion, there is a zeal, there is a fervency to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Now in verse 6, he says, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. It seems to give an indication here that the ones that he is speaking to in his own mindset are Gentile background believers. We're going to see this kind of confirmed in verse 13. I'm going to read verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. If you put these two verses together and you put it together with the historical context, it really gives you the understanding. Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles. He is speaking to Gentile background believers in Rome. This church began probably with Jewish background believers, but now it's in a Gentile background believing context and he is speaking to them, and that is what God has burdened him with, even though the conviction is always to the Jew first. And you're going to see something incredible when we get to Romans chapter 9. When we come to the first part of chapter 9, is that he makes an expression that if he could give up his own salvation, if it was possible, that his own countrymen according to the flesh, could come to know Christ, he would be willing to do that. So just because he has a calling to the Gentiles and there's a passion to go to them, he has the conviction first to the Jew and also to the Greek, and you see that he never, ever stopped loving in such an incredible way his own countrymen that are persecuting him because of his faith. He loved them, was willing to give up his own salvation if that was possible. So it's not that he loved the Gentiles more than his own nation, his own people. This is what God had called him to do. But that love for the Jewish people, his own countrymen, his own flesh, as it's called sometimes, his own brothers in the flesh, never stopped. It was always there in his heart and a part of his life. 
Let's go to verse 7. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as holy ones, or called as saints. In a general sense, we are called holy by God. We are called to be holy ones, saints. This is not something that a church denomination declares upon an individual. This is what God has called us. He has called us holy, and we are holy through Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the introduction. I just wanted to go back to the beginning of the introduction when Paul calls himself a servant before he calls himself an apostle. An apostle may be a term that is well esteemed. You know, they looked up to the 12 apostles and for Paul to be called of God among the believers he had esteem. But before he mentions that word, he calls himself a servant. We lived in a country where you had many servants in people's households, and you saw the way they were often treated and seen as a lesser part of society. And that would have been the context in Rome. And here's Paul, an educated man, an accomplished man with great honor throughout his life, humbling himself to call himself a servant. And it's a great lesson for us to never think of ourselves more highly than the honor of being a servant of Christ. Yes, and remember the concept, he calls himself a bondservant. And if you go back to the Tanakh, you see that this bondservant is once a servant is set free, a slave is set free, and he determines to stay under the authority of his master, then he becomes a bondservant for the rest of his life, and every possession that he has, including his family, belongs to the master forever. And this is what Paul is saying. This is the imagery. I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And that precedes his calling as an apostle. Every one of us, every person that's listening, you are a bondservant of Jesus Christ. It's not something that you have to do out of duty. It's not forced upon you. Because of God's grace, you have come into this kingdom, and from your heart flows faith. It's with the faith, it's with the heart man believes, and you have come into obedience to God in the Lord Jesus Christ from the heart, and you are a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He owns you. You belong to him but it's flowing from within inside of you. It's not something that you reject in the sense, I have to do this. It is something that defines who you are. You, from the heart, have believed that Jesus is the Christ. Going to verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. This is giving an understanding of the spiritual condition of the believers in Rome. Here, believers are in Rome, which is the heart of paganism, the heart of the pagan temples. When I say the heart, I'm talking about the center of the pagan religion for the Roman Empire. There is persecution that is going on against people that name the name of Christ. And now these believers within the city are staying strong with their faith. They're not backing away. They're not compromised. And their faith is being proclaimed through the whole world. They are saying around the Roman Empire, 
That's what I believe when it says the whole world, the Roman Empire, that Rome is saying that you cannot name Yeshua as the Christ, Jesus as the Christ. But there are believers in Rome that are doing that. And they're not backing away. Their faith is strong, and they believe this within their hearts, and their faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. It is a strong community of faith that believes that Yeshua is the Messiah. For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. So Paul is either talking about his prayer life, and the next verse brings that out, but he could also talk about their faith being proclaimed, that he talks about the believers in Rome. What is interesting about this, he's never been to Rome. He did not start this church, but the reports that are coming from others, he has heard this and it has encouraged his faith, and that uh, mentioning of them to others continues all around the Roman Empire. And he also says in verse 10, always in my prayers making requests, if perhaps now at the last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. It has been his desire to come to Rome, to minister among them, to see what God is doing right at the center of the Roman Empire, and he's praying for this. He's praying for them. He's making and mentioning of their faith to the other congregations, and now he believes God is sending him to the city of Rome. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established, or it can be translated, that you may be strengthened. So he's not going there to plant the church. He's going there to minister to this community of faith that has already been planted. And he wants to have some spiritual gift, to impart some spiritual gift to them and to have ministry among them. People see this word spiritual gift and they think about the spiritual gifts of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. I do not know if Paul has that in mind, but what I do know from a general understanding is this. He wants to come and give them a gift that is spiritual, that can be a benefit for them, and that can strengthen them in their faith. That's what we know for sure. Yeah, I wonder if Paul, in telling their story around the world, he's also coming and telling them about what's happening to the church around the world that he's experiencing, seeing people come to faith from backgrounds that it just seems impossible. And that is something, when I meet somebody from a background where you think, how could they ever come to faith? And then I want to ask them, how did you come to faith? And I hear these amazing stories through dreams or visions or miracles or something that just clicked, and suddenly that light comes on and they come to faith. And so it may have been him telling them stories as well. Yes, and we today, same principle, we are so strengthened and encouraged and established by hearing the testimonies of others that have stood strong in the midst of severe persecution and tribulations and the outside influences that are trying to destroy their faith and sometimes the internal persecution that comes through bad teaching and false doctrine and things of that nature within the body of the Messiah, that they stand strong and we encourage each other by seeing their faith. This 
church went through this situation externally, but they stood strong. It becomes a testimony to us. This church withstood an internal conflict that was going on, and they did not allow this unsound teaching to stand within their community of faith, and they got rid of that. That becomes an encouragement to the body of Christ. And so the church at Rome is being an encouragement to the whole Roman Empire, to all the believers in the Roman Empire. But at the same time, I agree, when he goes to Rome, he's going to be sharing about what God is doing in Philippi, what he's doing in Corinth, what he's doing in Thessalonica, and Berea, in the region of Galatia, and on and on, what he did in Athens. All these different places he will be sharing, and he probably will share about the great church in Antioch and what is happening in Antioch and going on, etc. So yes, I believe when he goes there, he will encourage their faith by the faith of others. Verse 12, that is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine, that when I come, I want to impart a spiritual gift to you to strengthen you. But when I'm there, your faith is going to encourage me and my faith will encourage you. And it's going to be an incredible time together. I believe Paul sees this, this time in which they're encouraging each other. Now, historically, when he gets there, he's going to have to be under house arrest for two years. But we see where people come in and go out. So he's going to be stationary, but the believers in Rome are going to be able to come to him. He's going to minister to them. They are going to minister to him as well. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far. He wanted to come, but remember in the book of Acts, he was constantly and consistently being led by God's Spirit. There is at one time he wanted to go to Bithynia, but God sends him to Macedonia. It was the direction of God that he was always looking for. And so he wanted to come, but he had been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also. I want to have some fruit. I want to see some fruit for God's kingdom come from you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I want to see, just as I'm ministering among the other Gentiles, what God is doing among you as well. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Here, the Greeks are the Hellenistic world. They are Greek speakers. And the barbarians, culturally, historically, are the non-Greek-speaking individuals. And they used to make fun of them. They used to say they speak bar, 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 like that. And they were known as barbarians. So actually, the Romans at one time, that before they were Hellenized, would have been known as barbarians. It's a general term for those that do not speak the Greek language. Remember, those who spoke the Greek language were Hellenized, and the center of their language and and their culture was wisdom. And they said, we are wise and everybody else is foolish. So look at the second part of that, both to the wise and to the foolish, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm coming. I'm going to be bold. I'm excited about it. 
It's the center of the Roman Empire. It's the center of paganism. It is the center of persecution. But I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we see this, this conviction, the Jew first and also to the Greek. And I want to say this with this understanding. Everything in the old is fulfilled in the new. The kingdom that God makes all the promises to where the nations, the Gentiles, would come to know God starts with Abraham and the covenant with Abraham. It starts before that. But the covenant with Abraham interjects the promises to such a degree. Think about Abraham. Through your seed, Abraham, all the families or all the nations of the earth will be blessed because, Abraham, you obeyed my voice. So we see this covenant with Abraham, covenant with Isaac, the covenant with Jacob, the covenant with Israel, the promises to Israel, the monarchy that was established, the kingship of David that the Messiah would come through and that his throne would be established forever through this son of David, this Messiah that would come, that everything about our gospel, our faith is coming from the Jewish people. They have first rights to receive, first rights to reject. We see Jesus coming to Israel, and from Israel, salvation going to the world. This conviction was in the heart of Paul, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. And let me just say something about that today. People get confused about this, and they want to keep that same principle. We're talking about the first century. Israel, the Jewish people, had the first understanding of the gospel. And from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the Gentiles, that's exactly how this took place. But some people today will go into a city and say, I cannot minister to any Gentiles until first I find Jewish people that I share the gospel with first. That's not what this is talking about. The gospel flows from Israel. The gospel came to Israel. They had the conviction, wherever they go, go to the synagogue, go to the Jewish people, tell them about their Messiah, their Christ, and first to them, and then also to the Greek. And after Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Silas went to the synagogues, and when they had success sometimes, some believed, but many times they were kicked out, who would they turn to? To the Gentiles. And they would start ministering the gospel to them as well. And that's what his calling was. So I don't believe that you need to show up in New Delhi, India, and you can't, cannot minister to the Indians there in New Delhi until first you go find a synagogue and first you share the gospel with them. And there is a synagogue in New Delhi, India. That's not what is being said historically Historically, the gospel came to the Jewish people first, and from the Jewish people, the gospel has come to the world. And this was a conviction of Paul. Hopefully, you understand what I am saying. For in it, verse 17, what? The gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. That is a quote from Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. But the righteous man shall live by faith or by faithfulness. 
as you can look at it back in Habakkuk, because in the Hebrew understanding, there's not a difference between faith and faithfulness. It's not distinguished. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is being revealed. Now, when we get to verse 18, we're going to see that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. But here we have the understanding that in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. What does it mean from faith to faith? People argue about this, but if we look at the flow of thought, my understanding of this, as we look back and he's talking about from Greeks to barbarians, from wise to foolish, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, here we could look at it in uh, several different ways. From faith to faith as understanding from the old to the new or from the Jew to the Greek from one person to another, that the righteousness of God is being revealed from faith to faith. I'm not for sure exactly what he means by that. Some will try to be dogmatic, but I get that sense from faith to faith, from one person to another, from glory to glory, that we are seeing the righteousness of God being revealed. The righteous man shall live by faith. One of the greatest statements that is made in Habakkuk chapter 2. And throughout all of Paul's writings that we have seen, as we look back at the previous letters that we have covered, that we come to God by His grace through faith. And as we go through these eight chapters, that's going to come up over and over again. Chapter 4 is a whole chapter dedicated to that understanding that we are saved by God's grace through faith, and the righteous man shall live by faith or by faithfulness unto God. Scott, can you explain the context in Habakkuk? Would that help us to understand why Paul mentioned that? In Habakkuk, what you're dealing with is a prophet that understands that God's judgment is coming from the Chaldeans or the Babylonians against the Jewish people because of their sin. And there is a contrast between the way that they are living from the righteous man. For the righteous shall live by faith. God's word is true. God's word will come true. And what is important is to be faithful unto God. That is the context. And we're about to flow in in verses 18 through 32 about mankind walking away from God and how the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness, where in the gospel, the righteousness of God is being revealed from faith to faith. But now we're going to see the contrast of that when we go to verses 18 through 32. So it lines up very well with what Habakkuk was saying, talking about their lack of faith and their wickedness and not believing the word of God and not believing Jeremiah and what he is preaching in contrast to all of their wickedness and their disbelief and that brings forth sin, the righteous shall live by faith. And that faith produces faithfulness unto God, that God's word is true. That is the context, and this is what Paul is going to be building upon as we go through these eight chapters. Let's close in a word of prayer. 17 verses, we're already over 40 minutes. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Help us to be people of faith, 
that believe you from the heart, that are bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ, that know your righteousness that comes through your gospel, the good news. And Lord, let us walk for you. Let us live for you. Let us be called by you, Heavenly Father, and let us be used for your glory and for your kingdom's sake. That is our prayer, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to learn more about IGM or have any questions about this podcast, feel free to reach out to us at info at integritygm.com and connect with us on Instagram at integrity underscore global and Facebook at Integrity Global Missions. If you like our podcast, please share it and leave a review. Thank you for listening. Have a blessed day.